Um, hey, Ross Sutherland here. You are listening to Imaginary Advice. I hope you're good. First of all, I wanted to announce that a brand new season of Imaginary Advice will begin on the 8th of January 2024. So very soon indeed. I'm calling it season three. Technically, it is season three because there have been two breaks in uh, the show's schedule since I started in 2014. Uh, I've got some really fun stuff underway for this new season, including the return of a couple of big serialized projects from the podcast past, along with a bunch of new stories that uh, I can't wait to share with you. Before we go any further, though, quickly, a little business. If you've been a Patreon supporter of the show, the Patreon will be unfreezing. Uh, but I've decided because January is a shitty month to suddenly have a surprise additional payment, I've decided the Patreon won't unfreeze until February, February the 1st. Hopefully, if you've been a Patreon supporter, you've already got my message about this, but just in case you haven't, there we go, now you know. Show returns January 8th, Patreon unfreezes February 1st. Now, before the new season begins, I wanted to share something special with you. Sometimes an opportunity just falls into your lap and, and you'd be an absolute fool not to go with it. And um, this is one of these times. Earlier this year, I got a message from Nathaniel Parks. Nathaniel is a composer based in Baltimore. Nathaniel asked me for permission to take some of the text from a past episode of Imaginary Advice and set it to music to be performed by choir and string quartet. And uh, obviously I had to think about that for about half a second. I was thrilled to be asked and even more thrilled with the results. The concert happened on November the 11th in Baltimore at the Emmanuel Episcopal Church and what Nathaniel has created here is something kind of incredible. It is a beautiful piece of music and that is then only further heightened for me personally by the, um, the original context of the words being sung here. I'm very pleased to tell you that Nathaniel has given me permission to include this musical piece on the podcast. So what I've decided to do is this. I'm going to replay as a repeat the original episode of Imaginary Advice that contained these words, the original source of the text. And then right after my original episode, I'm going to go straight into Nathaniel's composition. So these two pieces sort of become one. I think it works really well. It's like, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the original episode was essentially unfinished until now. Only now do I feel like it has a satisfying ending, ending with this particular piece of music. So anyway, this is a little Christmas treat uh, for me, <laughs> ultimately, but, uh, but you know, because I get to share it with you. So uh, without further ado, let's get started. Uh, so first, we're going to hear an audio essay called Repeat After Me. And then we're going to hear the musical piece titled But Sometimes I Worry, composed by Nathaniel Parks. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes I worry that I'm saying it too much. On average, I probably say it to my partner 10 or 11 times a day. I say it to her whenever we end a phone call, whenever she leaves for work. I say it to her when we're watching the news together. I say it because I feel sad and I want to feel better. I say it because I want her to say it back to me, which she does. I say it because we're passing each other in the hallway or because I feel guilty about something or because of the tiniest pause in our conversation, just a tiny blip in the rhythm of our speech and immediately, without thinking, those words appear. They effortlessly flow into the gap. I love you. The words become the gap. Sometimes those words seem to come from somewhere else entirely, repeating them over and over. I can feel them changing shape, getting smoother, lighter. I love you. I love you. I wonder if something's happening to me, to us. Repetition changes things. And, and I'm, I'm not sure I like those changes. Trying to walk the same way to the same store takes high-wire balance. Each step, not exactly as before, risks chasms of flatness. One stumble alone and nothing happens. Few are the willing and fewer the champions. Repetition, a poem by Kay Ryan. It's an honor to welcome to the stage of the Midnight Special, the gifted Andy Kaufman. A TV spot from 1977. Andy Kaufman takes to the stage. He's in a peach-colored jumpsuit, wide lapels, sideburns, hair combed back. There are two guys behind him with guitars. A quick glance off stage. And then he begins. I trusted you, 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 I trusted you. Sixteen lines into the song, and you can probably guess where we're going. Kaufman looks so confident. The live audience, who, by the way, all appear to be middle-aged ladies, seem totally enthralled by the performance, despite the fact that, you know, 
It only contains three words. myself thinking about school detention, writing out lines a hundred times, my hand cramping, the blunt pencil slowly transforming my words into a charcoal sketch of a city skyline, somewhere grey in the distance. By now, does anyone in the room have any idea what the word trust means? Or what you means? Or even what I means. Even as Andy bows and leaves the stage, you know what's going to happen. There's too much momentum for this to stop. The repetitions continue whether you want them or not. Kaufman gleefully runs back on. He jumps into the crowd, eyes bulging wide. He looks utterly insane, as if he would do this forever if he could, ready to fight mind-numbing repetition on behalf of all of us. Whenever I watch that sketch, I start to feel a little nauseous. Seeing a man work so hard to stay in the same place, I can't bear it. Fear of repetition is its not a rational fear. It's something far more primitive than that something buried deep in the collective psyche, this fear of repetition, of being repeated over and over until we forget who we really are. The writer Jorge Luis Borges had a phobia of mirrors. As a boy in Palermo, Borges had grown up with three large mirrors in his bedroom. In the dim light of the evening, he became convinced that the reflections could move all by themselves. Borges grew up fearful of ever being duplicated, of anything that would separate his mind from his body. Borges is not alone here. In fact, every culture has its own version of his nightmare. In ancient Egypt, it was known as car. In German mythology, the word is doppelganger. Haven't we all felt that fear, even just a little bit? At the hairdressers, standing between two parallel mirrors, caught in that endless corridor of duplication, doesn't everyone feel that twinge of vertigo, that loss of boundary, the self dissolving into an ocean of selves? Angelo Badlamenti's Dance of the Dream Man 
from the serial drama Twin Peaks. Of all the TV shows in history, Twin Peaks probably contains the highest percentage of supernatural doppelgangers. Writer and director David Lynch has always known how to plug into the unconscious fears of his audience. Being visited by your double has always been seen as a portent of your death. The doppelganger doesn't need to replace you. It steals your identity simply by existing. It exploits your fear of being a fraud, of being an imitation yourself. In this poem by James A. Linden, a man encounters his doppelganger. The poem is structured so that every line is repeated twice, the second half of the poem becoming the mirror image of the first. Entering the lonely house with my wife, I saw him for the first time, peering furtively from behind a bush, blackness that moved, a shape amid the shadows, a momentary glimpse of gleaming eyes revealed in the ragged moon. A closer look, he seemed to turn, might have put him to flight forever. I dared not, for reasons that I failed to understand. Though I knew I should act at once, I puzzled over it, hiding alone, watching the woman as she neared the gate. He came, and I saw him crouching, night after night. Night after night he came, and I saw him crouching, watching the woman as she neared the gate. I puzzled over it, hiding alone, though I knew I should act at once, for reasons that I failed to understand. I dared not put him to flight forever. A closer look, he seemed to turn, might have revealed in the ragged moon a momentary glimpse of gleaming eyes, a shape amid the shadows, blackness that moved. Peering furtively from behind a bush, I saw him for the first time entering the lonely house with my wife. Fear of the doppelganger hides in an ancient corner of our minds. You can't rationalise this feeling because it isn't rational. Just like my fear of saying I love you too many times. It's a fear of turning into an echo, like a photocopier running low on ink. This irrational, ridiculous fear that repetition is a sign of weakness instead of strength. Doppelganger, you pale comrade, why do you ape the pain of my love which tormented me upon this spot so many a night, so long ago?
The Doppelganger by Schubert, with words by Heinrich Heine. The first time I told her I loved her, I remember we were walking alongside a canal together. It was winter. We were sharing a pair of gloves, our spare hands clasped together in my jacket pocket for warmth. We kissed under the orange glow of the streetlight, preserving us like amber. I told her that I loved her. The words felt like lightning. Language can be a drug, just like any other. Words have power. It's easy to abuse that power, to become dependent on it, to lose control of it, to find oneself returning again and again, the drug weaker each time. But maybe, maybe some things need to be weakened. I mean, if every time I said, I love you, it felt as powerful as the first, if I could make my heart skip a beat on cue... Who would need any other drug ever again if three words were all it took? I'd never leave the house. Perhaps those words need to be diluted, just a little, brought down to a healthier, manageable dose. Perhaps this is our way of moderating their effects, of controlling them. After all, some words can hurt too much. My mother taught me this trick. If you repeat something over and over again, it loses its meaning. For example, homework, 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 homework. See? Nothing. Our existence, she said, is the same way. You watch the sunset too often, it just becomes 6 p.m. You make the same mistake over and over, you'll stop calling it a mistake. If you just wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, one day you'll forget why. Nothing is forever, she said. My parents left each other when I was seven years old. Before their last argument, they sent me off to the neighbor's house like some astronaut jettisoned from the shuttle. When I came back, there was no gravity in our home. Beds floating, I imagined it as an accident. That when I left, they whispered to each other, I love you. So many times over that they forgot what it meant. Family, family, family. Family, family, family. My mother taught me this trick. If you repeat something over and over again, it loses its meaning. This became my favorite game. It made the sting of words evaporate. Separation, separation, separation. See nothing. Apart, apart, apart. See nothing. From the poem Repetition by Phil Kay. We repeat words to get a better grip upon them. 
But it's all too easy to crush those words into dust, to hug them so tight that they fall to pieces. From the moment we learn the power of words, we inherit the power to abuse them, if that's the right word, abuse. Abuse something too much and it becomes invisible. Anyone who's battled with addiction knows this only too well. It's the nightmare endgame of any drug dependency, when a drug has become such an integral part of your system that it seems to have disappeared completely. worrying development. The more anxious I become around the words, I love you, the more unnatural those words begin to sound. Is this a sign of things to come? You start off chasing a buzz and you end up with just a buzz, a noise. I really don't like how that sounds. It makes me think back to Andy Kaufman again, about that impossible fight that he picked with boredom. Why did Kaufman decide to make that sketch a song? Perhaps, rather than thinking of my love as being reduced down to a noise, perhaps, instead, I can start to think of those words becoming music. I found myself researching the psychologist Diana Deutsch. I first heard about Diana on the science programme Radiolab on American radio station WNYC. Diana discovered something known as the speech-to-song illusion. Here's a recording of Diana's voice. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. So one day, whilst playing around with this recording, Diana accidentally looped a bit of it. But they sometimes behave so strangely... They sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave this so strangely. This is the speech to song illusion. The discovery so that the simple act of repeating so something shifts the way sometimes that your brain so hears it. A second ago, sometimes it was spoken English. So now, it's starting to sound like a song. As soon as something is repeated, our attention is immediately moved away from the content of the words and towards the contour of the words, the patterns of high and low pitches, the rhythms. Now, go back to the original recording. It still sounds as if Diana is breaking into song when she reaches those words. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Once words become music, they won't go back. Perhaps when I say, I love you, it's the same thing. Those words have now become song and should be thought of as music, not speech. Sure, those words may be harder to hear now, but you can't say that music needs to be comprehensible in order to have emotion. Music can move us in ways that we can't even translate back into words. I love you has not lost its meaning. The meaning has just migrated 
into a different sphere. The expression remains as true as it's ever been. It's just been translated into a non-verbal feeling. 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 A non-verbal from the composer Steve Reich. The entire song is composed of a single line by Ludwig Wittgenstein. The line, how small a thought it takes to fill a whole life. I was diagnosed with asthma when I was five years old. The doctors told me that if I was ever caught without my asthma inhaler, I should repeat this phrase to myself until help could arrive. I was told to repeat, it is passing. It is passing. It is passing. Simply saying the words was supposed to force the event into reality. As a child, I had many opportunities to use this phrase, always caught short without my medication. I remember one attack, aged 13, in the middle of Thetford Forest with my friend Darren. Whilst Darren biked back to town to get help, I lay on the floor of the forest and repeated those words over and over. It is passing. It is passing. Once inside the rhythm of the mantra, the words began to disappear, passing over from the conscious world into the unconscious. Slowly, I began to feel the muscles in my chest relaxing, buying me the time I needed until Darren could return. I remember the effect this had on me as a boy, to learn that words, just words, could affect my reality in such a profound way. It was many years before I discovered the author of that mantra, Frenchman Émile Coué, coiner of the term autosuggestion. Coué actually advised people to say the mantra in French, ça passe, 
sapas. Saying it this way was easier, even closer to breath, words invisible by design. One of Kue's students, C. Harry Brooks, wrote a book on how to correctly use these formulas. The strange thing is, as I read Brooks' manual, I couldn't help but imagine the author addressing my own problem, as if he was instructing me on how to correctly use the words, I love you. On waking in the morning before you rise, repeat the formula in exactly the same manner. Its regular repetition is the foundation stone of the method and should never be neglected. In times of health, it may be regarded as an envoy going before to clear the path of whatever evils may lurk in the future. But we must look on it chiefly as an educator, as a means of leavening the mass of adverse spontaneous suggestions which clog the unconscious and rob our lives of their true significance. Do not be anxious about it, continually scanning yourself for signs of improvement. The farmer does not turn over the clods every morning to see if his seed is sprouting. Once sown, it is left till the green blade appears. So it should be with suggestion. We all know the myth of Sisyphus, punished by the gods, forced to push a rock up a hill for eternity. Whenever the boulder reached the top, it would magically escape him and roll back to the bottom, ready to be pushed all over again. The gods wanted to remind Sisyphus that he could never surpass them, that he was human. The stubborn boulder was supposed to symbolise the limits of human achievement. Monotonous, incomplete, meaningless, ultimately absurd. Sisyphus is the poster boy for mindless repetition. He's the embodiment of the empty struggle. Because of this, many philosophers have written on Sisyphus, what it means to discover that our actions have no significance beyond themselves. Soren Kierkegaard connected the boulder directly to the theme of love. How easy it is to endlessly pour affection into something that remains unchanged. Kierkegaard sought solutions to this problem, ways to escape from Sisyphus's trap. But for the French author Albert Camus, there was no way to escape. Camus wanted to embrace the nonsense of Sisyphus. He writes, I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again. But Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe henceforth, without a master, seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain, in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. When we say, I do, at the altar, those words immediately change the world around us, in a legal sense, at least. Saying, I do, is like a magic spell. Say those words at the right time and they cause you to become married to someone. You only need to say them once. Well, once per marriage. And then, boom, you don't have to say them again. The responsibilities of that sentence are complete. 
Words like, I love you, however, those words are different. Saying, I love you, doesn't make you fall in love. Can't make you stay in love. I love you is the rock we push forever. Some days, those words might feel like a noise or music or breath or unconscious thought, but it's that same path up and down the mountain. The work is never over.
Thanks again to Nathaniel for letting me share that 
And also, thanks to you for listening. The essay section of this episode first appeared on BBC Radio 4 as an episode of the programme Something Understood. It was produced by Eleanor McDowell for Falling Tree Productions. For more information about the music, I've included a link to the concert programme in the show notes of this episode, which contains a list of all the musicians and also a copy of the performed text. There's also a link in the show notes to a video recording of the same performance. For more on Nathaniel, check out his website, nathanielparksmusic.com. I'll be back with a brand new series of imaginary advice on January 8th. Hopefully catch you then. <laughs>